Hide your kids. Lock the doors. You're listening to HR's most dangerous podcast. Chad Sowash and Joel Cheeseman are here to punch the recruiting industry right where it hurts. Complete with breaking news, brash opinion, and loads of snark. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's time for the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Oh, yeah. It's your proctologist's favorite podcast, a.k.a. the Chad and Cheese Podcast. I'm your co-host, Joel Cheeseman. Joined, as always, the Woody to my buzz, Mr. Chad Sowash, is in the house. And we are just giddy to welcome Dr. Beth A. Brooks, president of the Brooks Group. Beth, welcome to the podcast. Hi, and thank you for having me on this nice, cold December. You, you can't see her face on the podcast, but she was totally shocked and awed uh, by that intro. So we'll, we'll try to bring it down a little <laughs> bit for you. Now, my, my intro was pretty sparse. I know you have a long resume, a lot of things that, that you do. So spend a few, few seconds on your Twitter bio to let our listeners know who you are. So I've been a nurse executive, nurse leader for, gosh, 30 years. I've been a nurse. And the last probably 20 years of my career have really focused on nurse recruitment, retention, healthy work environment. Um, I've designed a questionnaire to measure the quality of nursing work life that's been used in 50 countries and it's been translated into 10 languages. So I kind of have a lot of expertise and knowledge around healthy work environment, work life, recruitment and retention of nurses. And it's just been my my sweet spot and my passion. And it's we've gone through some crazy times these last couple of years with nurse recruitment and retention. Loco. Yes. Well, let's talk about the state of nursing today. I mean, we're we're coming on the backside of a, of a pandemic. I mean, COVID's still out there, obviously. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're on the backside of a pandemic. That was a very large load for nurses and healthcare to actually carry. So where are we at now? Do we still have a higher attrition rate, higher turnover? What's what's going on? Everything's back to normal, right? Uh, and what should we expect? What should we expect? I think we should expect not knowing what's coming next. There's a lot of talk amongst my colleagues um, and a lot being written about COVID will reshape the nursing workforce in a way that we've not seen in the past. We'll have a whole segment of the workforce that will prefer this gig economy type work, which is very mm-hmm. new for someone like me who was a you know baby boomer nurse who eight hours a day, five days a week, staff nurse. So I think we'll have this gig economy component. We are definitely going to have, I believe, and I think some colleagues would agree, a movement away from the 12-hour shifts back Mm -hmm. to an eight-hour work shift. And that's for a couple of reasons, but primarily from fatigue and burnout. We've we've really learned through COVID that the 12-hour shift, and there's enough data now that we know about the impact on nurse and patient outcomes that I see a, a shift in the the hours that nurses work. Mm-hmm. We've got the gig economy. And then I think um, a whole group of nurses who have come to realize, unlike before, what their value is to the organization. And they want to be respected. They want to be compensated fairly. And they want to be listened to. And that's sort of the message in every study that's coming out. That has been, those have been the themes. So I think it's going to be a more demanding workforce and wanting a better work environment that we've had in the past. So are we going to move away from the traditional or do you see us slowly moving away from the traditional, not just 12 hours, but also we're seeing a lot of apps that are out there that help healthcare systems really focus on being able to manage their people better. Although 
those people also have the opportunity, as you talk about the gig economy, not just to work in their healthcare system, but also to be able to go outside of that healthcare system. And it's almost like an Uber where it's, you know, you're, you're calling inert, you see what shifts are open and you mm-hmm. go down to, let's say, for instance, here in Columbus, Indiana, we go to Seymour or we go to Greenwood. If there's something open and they're paying a little bit more, do you see that happening where it's a more of a traveling kind of workforce? I do. And I think there's a, but not for everybody, right? I mm-hmm. think like anything, it's a big workforce and there are segments of the workforce that enjoy that kind of flexibility, autonomy, and freedom. What's interesting about what you said though, Chad, is there have been a couple of large organizations mm-hmm. that have made employees sign almost like a pledge where you're first. And so you are employed by us and your loyalty, if you will, is to us. And so we expect you to give your hours to us. And I'm, I'm kind of generalizing how I'm saying yeah. this. I call it a loyalty pledge. I'm sure that's not what they call it. Yeah. But there have been organizations that are trying to... Um, more stickiness, keeping those employees in their workforce, yeah. knowing that, yes, many nurses have another job and they're yeah. picking up a shift and and maybe that's okay. But then if that's the fifth shift of 12, then you start to ask yourself about fatigue and errors and mm. other things. And that's something that we've never gotten our arms around. Are they, are they paying a premium for that? I mean, is that kind of maybe a good thing for nursing? Like the best of the best get, get sort of like brought into the fold and we're paying you more money and we'll, like, we'll make it worth your while to give us sort of first right of refusal or to be your number one opportunity. Is that a good thing maybe? I think it's a good thing when hospitals um, do and put in systems that allow that to work for the nurse, right? If mm-hmm. you're going to give us your blood, sweat and tears, we're going to offer self-scheduling so that you can have control over the schedule. We're going to try to place you on a shift that you want to be primarily on. So I think it's that give and take about if you're going to um, be loyal to our organization, we're going to sort of meet you halfway on how Mm -hmm. we um, offer benefits, compensation. um, Maybe it's more continuing education dollars. So it's those kinds of other benefits besides salary that also make a difference. Do you have a sense of what percentage breakdown right now nursing is sort of contract gig work and what percentage Mm -hmm. is the traditional hourly one employer? That, Joel, is a really good question. And I can answer it maybe in a slightly different way because I don't know that that's actually tracked. Part of the challenge we have in the country, across the country, is there is no one way to identify a nurse. You have a Mm -hmm. license number, but that could be different in every state. Mm -hmm. You have some nurses have um, a DEA number where they can prescribe medication. Some nurses have a, a what's called an identifier that you receive after you take the licensing exam. So it's really hard to know who the workforce is and where they're going because we just don't have a great standard method to measure. But what we do know is how many nurses are in the Bureau of Labor Statistics category about travel nursing. Mm. So the travel nursing segment of nurses doubled during COVID. Now, when I say doubled, that sounds like, ah, it's a lot. But when it was 2%, it went to 4%. So that piece, we have better clarity around how many nurses are actually traveling than say, I'm a full-time staff nurse versus I'm a full-time per diem nurse. Can you explain that travel nurse to, to everybody who might not understand what a travel nurse is versus your full-time you know, on staff? 
there has always been, for as long as I've been a nurse, there's always mm-hmm. been an opportunity to be a travel nurse. And so by that, you don't have a home institution. You work for a company that contracts with a hospital. You choose to work at that hospital on a 13-week contract. When that 13-week contract is over, sometimes mm-hmm. the hospital will want you to renew or sometimes the need, perhaps you were covering um, an LOA or an FMLA or something. And so that mm-hmm. need is gone. So they don't renew your contract. But there are nurses who live their life as a travel nurse and they might spend the winters in Florida working on 13 week <laughs> contracts, right? Yeah, and, or they spend their winters in Colorado skiing, you know, uh-huh. and then they uh-huh. might go to California. So there's this cadre of nurses who literally move around the country going to where they're needed um, in 13-week increments. And they Is the pay better? The pay is always better, ah. but uh-huh. it's that old apples and oranges, right? You want to compare your hourly rate to total comp, and then that's where those travel nurses have to think about housing, and they have to think about health insurance, and so that's you know, maybe that hourly rate is not as much more than the full-time staff person. Gotcha. Talk about the state of recruiting for nurses, because in this environment where it's sort of a marketplace, maybe nurses are getting reviewed by where they've worked and you're sort of calling them on when times are, you know, need is higher than others. It's not the traditional post a job, you know, hope to get some resumes, you know, go hit up the, uh, you know, the, the schools and try to get people in your you know, facilities early. How is this changing the dynamics of recruiting? So um, I will start, answer your question by revealing my bias. Way back in the day, nurse recruiters, talent acquisition was done by a nurse. When RNs were in HR doing recruitment, my perception, I don't have any data, better understanding of the role, better understanding of where a candidate would fit on a department or in a specific unit, and better able to do all the pre-screening down in the HR department before that candidate got to the office. So that model has changed. Healthcare has gone to what I call this retail recruitment model. You see all kinds of other folks coming in to HR in healthcare to be um, talent acquisition professionals, and they have no experience in healthcare. And that's not to say they can't learn, but it's a two-year learning curve. And so the process has gotten slow. Time to fill has um, significantly slowed. And quite frankly, um, we haven't modernized our workflow in HR. And so nurses, you have to be pretty quick and nimble because those candidates have many offers They have many options. Mm -hmm. And if you're not quick with your process and bringing someone through, you're going to lose the top candidates. And that's what we're seeing. Definitely. Can you tell us the impact that, uh, because the, the U.S. used to have vocational high school programs, which were great feeders to our community healthcare systems, mm-hmm. right? Um, can you tell us the impact that had? Was it a great impact? Did it really not impact that much because kids still had to go to, to, to college to, to be able to get their, their nursing degrees or their certificates or what have you? Can you tell us what kind of impact that had? It had an impact. It always has had an impact, only at certain times in our labor economy. Nursing has forever gone through cyclical shortages. And so whenever we go through a cyclical shortage, there's mm-hmm. this all hands on deck, let's enhance our community pipeline. Let's work with the community colleges. Let's have uh, opportunities for someone who's in school to do some clinical work and then 
they're a part-time employee, and then they move through their education program while they're working. So as soon as we have those downturns where there's a nursing shortage, there's all kinds of activity, and it has worked. It's worked incredibly well to even take right now, take one, someone from EVS, environmental services, or someone from dietary services who wants Mm. to be a nurse, help them through school and bring them back. So yes, those programs work. Unfortunately, I don't want to say that they're not sticky, but the urgency of, of the value of them changes based on where the shortage is happening for registered nurses when we go. Well, there's through. a lag time, right? I mean, because yeah. it, there's there you can't just turn the spigot on and here comes nurses. You've got a lag right. time, right? Exactly right. And um, there's all kinds of reason for the lag time, but yes, you're exactly right. And what's what's the shortage like now? I mean, my perception as an outsider is you have aging baby boomers, you have uh, you know burnout from the pandemic. I have to imagine shortages are at a, at an all time high, maybe right now. I think yes. And what's interesting about what happened in during this last COVID, so enrollment went down, graduations did not keep up where we thought it would. And as that enrollment went down a little bit, then 100,000 nurses left the job market during COVID. And everyone assumed wow. those 100,000 RNs were baby boomers nearing retirement. Well, that wasn't the case. It yeah. was young moms and dads trying to balance homeschool <laughs> with yeah. their jobs with no daycare and available. And so we lost that 100,000. So right now, the la- latest predictions I've seen is um, 500,000 nurses. By 2026, at least 500,000 nurses in the next five, six years we need to find new in addition to the retirements. So talk to me about solutions for that gap. Uh, Chad is Chad was in the military, and we read stories about immigrants coming over, and if they are of fighting age and ability, they go to the military if they want to come to the country. Why, why should, we be, should we be thinking about immigration differently, bringing people in that want to be healthcare uh, providers, get them in the school system, you know, get them, get them into the country? And also the other side of that, uh, we talk about automation a ton. And, and I know that there are robotics in, in hospitals and in healthcare systems. Systems, but what's your take on immigrants and at robots, for lack of a better term, taking some of these uh, some of these openings, which are going to be a plenty? Yes. Well, I will say, and now you're there has always been, always, always a very active pipeline of nurses coming to America from other parts of the world. Right. That that has always been the case. The problem with that has been that the countries where those nurses are coming from they decimate their own health systems. And so we, we create another problem in other parts of the world. The nursing immigration, again, like anything, picks up when the shortage in America becomes significant and critical. Then we ramp up our foreign recruitment of nurses. I've not really heard a lot about bringing young people in as an immigrant to become a nurse. That's not something I'm as familiar with, although I have heard about like someone who was a physician in Poland or a physician in Russia who comes to America and then can move through the nursing curriculum quickly. But I'm not familiar with just young people coming in from an immigration perspective. And and it's unfortunate because we don't have enough bilingual healthcare providers, which impacts healthcare outcomes, which impacts health disparities. 
So if our nursing workforce, which is something we talk about, looked like the patients we serve, mm-hmm. we would be in a much better place for, from a healthy nation perspective. But we don't have enough of those bilingual healthcare workers. And that would be a wonderful way to, to look at that. And the robots? The- Robots you can speak all the languages if you want. Yeah, to. well, you know that's well. They already have those. You know the translation little pods that they wheel around in hospitals or on carts. Um, I don't know that I see robots. Certainly not as care providers per se, but um, and I don't know if you want to call. Have you heard about the electronic EICUs? I don't. I have not. So there's technology where a nurse. Usually it's a critical care certified nurse is sitting in a, let's call it a pod with three or four other critical care nurses, and they are monitoring an entire ICU three, three towns over. It's called wow. an EICU. So you have wow. technology supporting um, remote monitoring, if you will, of hospitalized yeah. patients while there's someone in this headquarter pod And for some reason, it's totally slipping my mind what the name of the room they call it. But um, we do see that as a way to not replace, but um, enhance. If you don't have enough of the right staff on the unit, you Hmm. do have your EICU staff that can come into a patient's room. And the technology is such that that camera in the patient's room can zoom right on to like an IV pump or an IV drip and see what's working and then communicate with the patient. So that is helping. And we have a lot of young nurses coming into nursing right now who need Mm -hmm. a backup, someone more experienced, and they have that person, the remote ICU monitoring. But the robots, I think, you know, what you see now is robots delivering supplies, delivering meals. Um, You see robots in the pharmacy. So so I won't be getting a colonoscopy from a robot anytime soon. Unfortunately, that's, unfortunately, Joel's that's 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 like his major 2024 wish, Beth. He was uh, really looking for a robot colonoscopy. Yeah. So it's funny because what you're talking about, we've actually seen in like hotels where you come in, there's nobody at the front desk, there's an iPad that's there, right? And you're checking in through the front desk. Now, this is this is how we fix a scale issue because humans don't scale well right? We need that nurse in that room, but do we need that nurse in the room for all of the duties that the nurse has? Well, in this case, no, there's a command center and they, they check everything out. So, I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, we're, we're talking about hotels and then being able to, you know, to scale this way. Let me flip the script on you here for a minute. Now, I understand there's a myth that pay transparency in the healthcare system mm-hmm would create significant cultural changes. What exactly is meant by that cultural changes just by allowing everybody to know that they're getting paid fairly? Just so happens that I've written a couple of, I write a career coaching column for a nursing Mm -hmm. leadership journal. And one of the articles I wrote was about pay transparency. And one of the benefits of being very forthright with what the hourly pay is, what's the pay scale, what grade, Mm -hmm. what's the range, those kinds of things. There's three things that the science has said to us. One, it engenders more trust between the employee and the organization. Two, there's this feeling of distributive justice. Everyone's being treated fairly because we know what the compensation or what the ranges are. And, and actually in one study, it impacted the turnover. The turnover went down 
However, it has been challenging for hospitals to have that level of pay transparency. It's not something that Why? they've ever done. You know what? I think it's the sacred cow, honestly, that probably should be slain. <laughs> we've, we've always done it this way. Yeah. That's what it is, honestly. And I honestly, and I don't think until Me Too, it really became an issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a study that came out from UCSF like 2015. There was a $5,000 difference in compensation between men and women nurses, which got everybody. Oh, yeah. Um, so that has begun to change. But then there's, you know, you're not supposed to talk about salary. It's illegal to talk about salary. There's all these perceptions like the employers say you can't talk about that with your peer and that's not true right so where we do have really good pay transparency is in our hospitals that have collective bargaining units the unions unions baby unions uh-huh. <laughs> so i mean what it sounds like is literally you know we're trying to expand profits because the, the united states as you know uh, to the gdp we we spend more money than any other country that's out there, although uh, nurses aren't seeing it. So wh- where's that? Where's that going? And to be able to grow that trust, which we've lost over the last decades, uh, and we need, especially from our healthcare professionals, what do we have to change to make this actually work for our healthcare systems? Because again, Joel Joel said it. I mean, boomers are out there. We've got we're going to have a bulging healthcare system, mm-hmm. and we're not going to have the staff to take care of it. So, is that a piece of it? Is it pay transparency? Is it more pay? What do we What do we have to do? What's a short term fix? Well, you know, nurses would tell you they want more pay. Hospital CFO will tell you there's no more money. So. <laughs> There, there we go. Right now, I don't want to um, bore your listeners or either of you with why nursing is on the wrong side of the ledger and on a P and L. Mm-hmm. But there is a problem with the way nursing care is invisible and is embedded into the room charge, which makes it look like nursing is a cost and not ah. a revenue generator. So until we are shown as generating revenue which we do, which is a whole yes. other conversation. I could go down that little rabbit hole. But until we show revenue in the hospital, because all the tasks we do that are coded in the computer, the physicians get to bill for, not the nurses. Almighty dollar, Cheeseman. It's the almighty dollar. So there's no customers the if there's no nurses. I mean, there's no so, customers without nurses. So. There's, I was going to say, no, they're going to be customers. They're just not going to get care. Yeah, that's that's the big that's the big key there. The right. customers are not going away. Yeah, it's just whether they get care. Yeah, so it's it's a money. Um, I do think that that you know you said how do we build trust back into the system? Uh, a couple mm-hmm. of things. One, better, healthier work environments. We know that um, burnout is not my problem. A a burnout comes from a a toxic work environment. So we've got to fix our work environment. We've got to have better listening by the senior team because nurses don't feel listened to. And I think that piece of autonomy and control over your practice there, you know, that there's, you would never, that my girl, my, one of my colleagues gives this example. If you were a CFO and you walked in and they said to you, oh, Joel, Today, you're going to have to go work on five north rather than your nice office down in the in that would never happen to a CFO. But yeah. if you're a nurse, you can show up at work and they'll say, oh, 
you're not working here today. You're going over to three South. See you later. Have fun. Mm-hmm. So you have no, con- you feel like you're this just widget in a system and hospitals that have worked on their work environments, have leaders that listen and have nurses that have a voice in how care is provided. Those are the environments that still may have difficulty recruiting, but they have less difficulty. And and what you're outlining is the recipe for a gig economy uprising, because if that's the environment that nurses have, I would totally want to be uh, you know, a freelancer or a contract worker, because I can tell you how much you're going to pay me. I can, I can just decide where I'm going to work. And I also think I would imagine that from a trade pay transparency perspective, the gig economy, assuming that you publicize what you want per hour or what you're going to pay a nurse per hour, then that sort of levels the playing field because I can go and say, look, the nurses that do exactly the same thing that I do are on the site getting more than me. So I should be getting at least that. I mean, is that happening or should it happen? It is. So whether it should or not, it is happening. That's exactly what's going on. Good. And I think it's, I think it's fine. I think nurses have always been a little bit shy about talking about money and, and, you know, we, we're all in it for, the, you know, to take care of patients and do the right thing. And absolutely that's true. But there's something about um, the work, the caring work of women that has never really, um, been compensated appropriately, but there are nurses who bid on shifts all the time. There's shift bidding apps. Hmm. We've got a shift over here at hospital A for $50 an hour and hospital B is going to pay 60. And you can, you as the nurse can bid on which shift you want and then go and do that. And really any nurse can do that as long as you have somewhere to hang your hat where you're, where you have benefits, right? It's hard to not have health insurance and it's hard to, uh, that's a whole other podcast that we, Oh yeah. But I mean, we just talked about the companies or the country who spends the most in GDP on healthcare and not all of our people are covered. Whoo. That is another whole another podcast, but Dr. Beth, a Brooks, Beth, we we appreciate you coming on the show. And if somebody wanted to reach out to you because they want to dig a little bit deeper into this conversation, where would you send them to connect with you? I would send them to LinkedIn and just find my LinkedIn profile. Easy. It's right there. Easy peasy, nacho cheesy. Another one in the can, Chad. We out. We out. Thank you for listening to what's it called? The podcast. The Chad. The cheese. Brilliant. They talk about recruiting, they talk about technology, but most of all, they talk about nothing. Just a lot of shout-outs of people you don't even know, and yet you're listening. It's incredible. And not one word about cheese. Not one. Cheddar. Blue. Nacho. Pepper Jack. Swiss. There's so many cheeses, and not one word. So weird. Anywho... Be sure to subscribe today on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That way, you won't miss an episode. And while you're at it, visit www.chadcheese.com. Just don't expect to find any recipes for grilled cheese. It's so weird. We out!